This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 15, looking this morning at verses 1 through 21. Exodus 15, continue our series of studies in Exodus. Looking this morning at chapter 15, uh, last week we looked at the crossing through the Red Sea, the salvation of Israel, the defeat of the Egyptian army, and in chapter 15, uh, at least the first 21 verses, we have the record of Israel's celebration of that event. And so we pick up with verse 1. Hear the word of God. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. Peoples have heard, they trembled. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror, dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as a stone. So your people, O Lord, pass by. So the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in, plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your own abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. When the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. 
Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam, Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Give thanks to the Lord for his word. Let's pray together. Our Father, we turn to your word now and to this uh, wonderful and delightful passage of celebration. Father, we pray that as we study it, we'd certainly understand it, but Father, we also would share in the spirit of it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. People love celebrations, love to celebrate. We associate that with, uh, with happiness, uh, with good things. For example, some of you yesterday celebrated the victory of your football team. Others didn't, but some of you did. Uh, the, the, the Lar family uh, celebrated uh, the wedding of Amy's mother, Sharon, to Charlie Dunn uh, yesterday. Uh, this Saturday, uh, we will celebrate the anniversary of the beginning of the Protestant Reformation with Reformation Day. Uh, a week from Tuesday night, some of you may be celebrating the victory of your candidate in the election. Uh, we celebrate the birth of a child. We celebrate the first step of a child. All kinds of things that we celebrate, sometimes on a, on a very small and personal scale, and sometimes on a grand, even a national scale. What we have in this passage is an expression of celebration. As Israel celebrates the fact that they still exist. Uh, the fact that they have not been drawn back into slavery, but the fact that not only are they free, not only have they been saved, but their enemy has been utterly destroyed. And in such a, a, a rapid turnaround from what seemed like the most bleak of situations to what seemed like an almost uh, incomprehensible victory and deliverance. And in fact, humanly speaking, it was. Now we understand that. We, we can understand how, how, uh, how, how happy, how exalted they would feel in such a rapid and magnificent turnaround. But you think, why would there be a whole chapter, or nearly a whole chapter of the Bible devoted to that happiness? Devoted to their celebration. Because that's practically what this is. The, the better part of a, of a chapter devoted to recording their celebration. This victory hymn that the people of Israel sing together. This song of the sea, as it's sometimes been called, there on the side of the Red Sea. Why would they do that? Well, if you look at that in the light of the rest of Scripture, you will discover that uh, it's really not that unusual, maybe unusual for this much, uh, these many verses, but it's not unusual to note singing, singing in celebration after God's mighty acts. You can trace this through Scripture. Uh, there was singing at creation, Job 38, uh, which follows much later than Genesis, much far, uh, far along in the Bible after the creation, and yet Job was a very early book in terms of when it was written. Uh, Job 38.7 tells us, When God made the world, the morning stars sang together. The angels shouted for joy. In the book of Judges, uh, we read how Israel defeats Jabin and Sisera. We read of Deborah and Barak. They sang for joy. 
in Judges chapter 5. King David, 2 Samuel 22, sings when God delivers him from his enemies. And in fact, in David's case, uh, a number of those celebrations recorded become part of the Psalms. Uh, Israel, when they returned from exile, Isaiah prophesied they would return home with singing, with celebration. He says, Isaiah 51, 11, the ransomed of the Lord will return. They will enter Zion with singing, singing of joy, singing of celebration. Of course, you know, when Jesus was born, the uh, angelic chorus sang. Oh, no, it, did, it says they didn't, it didn't, it does not specifically say they sang, it said they said, which can you imagine there was not singing at the birth of the Messiah. And of course, Mary and Zechariah and Simeon and others join in uh, with those songs that we find celebrating, acknowledging, commemorating uh, the birth of Jesus. And even in the church, we sing the praise of God in celebration as we gather each week on the first day of the week, acknowledging the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as Paul writes it in Colossians 3, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in your heart to God. Come to the end of the Bible. Revelation gives us a peek into heaven. And what the, uh, what the angels and what the church triumphant are doing in heaven. What are they doing? They're singing. Even gives us some of the words they're singing. Holy, holy, holy. Worthy is the Lamb. As they celebrate the victories of God. And so perhaps after that, it shouldn't surprise us that nearly a whole chapter is dedicated to Israel's giving glory to God after what is admittedly one of the pivotal acts of redemption in all of Scripture, bringing his people out of bondage in Egypt, securing their freedom through the destruction of the Egyptian army in the Red Sea, and bringing the same people of God through that Red Sea. But it's not just the people of Israel then who should celebrate. As Christians, uh, we too have much to celebrate. In fact, uh, on a general level, many of the same things that they did. And we, we see all of the works of God from a little different perspective. We live after Christ has come. They lived long before that. And yet, as you look at their celebration in general terms, you'll see that they celebrate basically the very same things that you and I celebrate as Christians and should celebrate and should acknowledge. Well, what are those things? Well, let's look at them. In the first place, they celebrate who God is. They just celebrate this magnificent being who has so graciously uh, come down to them and who has made them his own people. Who is he? Well, he's our God. That's one of the things that they acknowledge about him. We begin in verses 1 and 2 and 3. Uh, Moses and the people of Israel, they were all singing this, uh, begin with what appears to be the refrain, because it's repeated in, ver- in, in verse 1 and then later uh, at the end of the chapter, verse 21, kind of like bookends. Sort of like the refrain, the repeated refrain of the song. Notice uh, Moses, the people of Israel, sing, I will sing to the Lord. He's triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider is thrown into the sea. And then we come to the end of that section, and Miriam, who's the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, I almost expect the sister of Moses, which she also was, However, Aaron was older than Moses. Aaron had, had pride of place by virtue of being the firstborn. So Miriam is noted uh, as the sister of Aaron. Uh, and most likely the girl who, who put Moses out there in the basket that we read of earlier in Exodus 2. 
Uh, but Miriam, sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand. All the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing, and they sing the same thing. It says, and Miriam sang to them. Uh, Hebrew actually says, answered them by that same refrain. Sing to the Lord for his triumph gloriously. The horse and his rider is thrown into the sea. It may be that she answered that the women were answering the men, kind of this antiphonal back and forth, kind of a round type of thing. Uh, we don't know, but the word answered might seem to imply that. that the men would sing and the women would answer back uh, in this celebration. But notice, they're singing about who the Lord is. First of all, that he is our God. Look at verse 2. The Lord is my strength, my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. By the way, you see beautiful the uh, mark of Hebrew poetry here, the parallelism the way of saying something and saying basically the same thing again in different words. It's a a mark of Hebrew poetry uh, you see beautifully displayed here. This is my God and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. They praise him because he is is their God. Notice that personal, personal pronouns, my strength, my song, my salvation, my God, my Father's God, I will praise him, I will exalt him. Yes, Israel as a whole was singing this, but there was also a very personal element to him. They were taking ownership of him, recognizing that he was not just their God as a group, but he was the God of each one of them individually. There was a personal element there. He is our God. They acknowledge who he is as a warrior. Look at the end of, or rather look at verse 3. The Lord, again using his covenant name there, Yahweh, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. A man of war. And this really introduces a theme you find in other places in Scripture of God as the divine warrior. The God who was the champion of his people. Remember when uh, Israel and the Philistines faced off and they they challenged Israel, send out a champion. And Goliath is the Philistine champion. And they want him, the Israelites, to send out someone to fight Goliath rather than the whole army's fighting. Send out a champion, a representative, who will fight our representative. Well, the Lord is the divine warrior. He is the champion of his people. He's the one who fights for them. And then the Lord is his name. Remember, one of the, the, the key battles in Egypt was acknowledging the Lord. And Pharaoh would say, who is this Lord? I don't know, I don't know this God. Well, they say, the Lord is his name. He made himself known. Uh, Pharaoh had to acknowledge him, uh, who he is as the Lord. But also, not only acknowledging who he is as our God, not only acknowledging who he is as the one who fights on behalf of his people, but acknowledging who he is as, as the one who is incomparable. Look a little further down, verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? Awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed him. Certainly no God in Egypt was like the Lord. Made that perfectly clear. This is a theme you find in other places in Scripture. In Isaiah, Isaiah 40, uh, who is like the Lord? Who can compare to him in terms of who he is, in terms of what he's done, in terms of his strength, or as they say, majestic in holiness, glorious in deeds, doing wonders? There are pretenders. In fact, if you look... Uh, Look at Revelation chapter 13. You'll notice this theme arises again. 
but in the wrong place. Revelation 13, verse 4, the beast rises up, curiously enough, out of the sea. The Lord demonstrated his power over when he delivered his people in Exodus 14. But notice what happens at Revelation 13, 4. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who can fight against it? Again, attributing to the beast, this representation of, of evil, Satan, his kingdom, uh, this, this incomparable nature. Who is like the beast? Who can stand? Who can fight against the beast? We'll look at a few chapters over Revelation 17, 14. Revelation 17, 14. Verse 14 says, They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. For He is the Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with Him are called and chosen and faithful. Who can compare with the lamb? Who can defeat, or the beast rather? Who can defeat the beast? Well, the lamb, the Lord Jesus, can. He is the one who is incomparable. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you? And so, first, they're praising God simply for who He is. He is God. He is their God. There's none like Him. He is the warrior who fights on behalf of His people. Dear friends, as the people of God, as Christians. We should have a sense of the majesty and the grandeur and the greatness and the incomparability of God. We need that. Our souls need that. Our Christian lives need that. But all too often, we're missing that. Which led J.B. Phillips to write his book, Your God is Too Small. One of R.C. Sproul's best-selling and most influential books has been one of his earliest, The Holiness of God. Because it's a book that just teaches what the Scripture teaches about the magnificence of God. We need that vision, if not literally, then at least in our hearts, that Isaiah had of the majesty of God, exalted, lifted up, incomparable. If we're going to not only live the Christian life the way that we should, but also celebrate the way that we should. So that's the first thing they celebrate here. We too need to celebrate. And that is simply who God is. But of course they also celebrate what God has done. This, this magnificent being has acted on their behalf. You have them recount the, the crossing of the Red Sea in verses 4 through 10. And it's interesting how they, how they put this in poetic imagery. Uh, they, they speak of it literally. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea. His chosen officers, these elite Leaders in the Egyptian army, special forces, sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down in the depths like a stone, acknowledging it was God. Your right hand, O Lord. Your right hand shatters the enemy. You overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fear. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, that mighty east wind that the Lord sent, they liken as being the very breath of God. Blowing and separating the waters. The waters pile up, stood up in a deep, in a heap, and the deeps congeal in the heart of the sea. Now, notice they go back now to Pharaoh. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. 
in one verse, they, they, they demonstrate perfectly how egocentric Pharaoh was. How many times can the word I occur in a single verse? Or, or my, well, it happens a lot here. This is what I'm going to do, Pharaoh says. And he's the God leader, the, the divine leader of the mightiest nation with the mightiest army on the face of the earth. And he purposes to go after God's people. I will pursue, I will overtake, and so on. Is God worried? No. Verse 10, you blew with your wind, the sea covered them, they sunk like lead in the mighty waters. Done. Finished. Game over. Egypt loses. Epic fail. No. Pharaoh is not the one calling the shots. Egypt is not the one saying what's going to happen. They boast, they purpose, they intend, but God just as quickly and easily defends his people, his people and they are defeated. So you see what he's done. He's redeemed his people uh, by his own, by the strength of the Lord against, humanly speaking, impossible odds. There's no way Israel should have survived the onslaught of the Egyptian army. Notice also what he's done. Not only does he redeem his people, as it's so poetically described, but verse 13, he led his people. 13, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. Not only has he led them, he has loved them, guided them by your strength to your holy abode. Redeemed his people. He led his people. Remember, one of the things that enticed Pharaoh to come out was the appearance that Israel was lost, wandering. They don't know where to go. Well, let's go get them. Well, no, the Lord was leading them in that way. And the Lord led them, and he led them to the sea and then through the sea. All of that an expression of his steadfast love. And in the process, what he's done is not only redeem his people, not only lead them, not only love them, but in the process, terrified his enemies. Look at verse 14. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Hangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. The fact is, word got out. Uh, when uh, the Lord led his people, when this happened, uh, when they brought them out, uh, when he brought his people out of Egypt. In fact, this occurs later as they're about to go into the promised land in Joshua chapter 2. They sent out the spies and, and Rahab the, the harlot is there and she hides them. She protects them and gives them uh, basically a scouting report on the city of Jericho. But notice what she says. This is Joshua 2 uh, verse 9. Uh, she comes up to the men, hiding them on the roof of her house, and she said to the men, listen to this, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Don't think word didn't get out. When the Lord parted the sea, led his people through it safely, and then destroyed the army of Egypt. Rahab said, we've heard, and the people here are terrified. Their hearts, as it were, have melted Fear. Why? Because they acknowledge that the Lord acts, the Lord fights on behalf of his people, and they recognize they could not stand 
of course, such a magnificent and mighty being. And so the enemies of the Lord, the enemies of his people, are terrified. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are as still as a stone. Celebrating who God is. Celebrating what God has done. But then they also celebrate what God has promised. Not just what has happened, but what has yet to happen. What he has promised. Look at verse 16. To your people, O Lord, pass by. To the people pass by whom you purchased. The enemies are still as a stone. Now notice what, they, what God has promised. He's promised a place for his people. Verse 17, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. He's promised a place for his people. He is, they have the certainty of being in that place. It's the place of the Lord's presence. The sanctuary, O Lord. Just before that, the place which you have made for your abode, place of the Lord's presence, place of the Lord's reign. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Now, you don't have to think hard. You don't have to have a Ph.D. in biblical studies to recognize that the, the things that they celebrated are the very same things that we celebrated. They celebrated God's redemption, how he led them, how he loved them. We celebrate the same thing, only it didn't happen in the Red Sea for us, it happened at the cross. That there Christ, our divine warrior, took on our enemy, sin and death, and defeated it for us as an expression of his love for us. And he continues to lead us by his word and by his spirit. And, and what he has promised, a place for his people, certainty that we will be in that place, is the place of the presence of God. And it is the place of the Lord's reign. Now, of course, the Lord reigns all the time. But that will be a place where everyone acknowledges and, and willingly bows to the reign of the Lord. Just a couple of examples. How can you read this and not think of John 14, where Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will return and I will bring you to where I am. That where I am, there you may be also. A place, the promise of Jesus we will be in that place, and the promise that Jesus will be there with us in that place. The place, the presence, and the reign of the Lord. John 14, another place, Second Peter chapter 3, verse 13, where Peter says, For we are awaiting a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. And so like Israel, we, we celebrate the same God, who He is. We celebrate what He has done for us, an even more magnificent work in defeating sin and defeating death. And we too, uh, while we look back on things that they looked forward to, the work of Jesus, uh, we too look forward to the promises of God, the fulfillment of the promises that God has made. When we will be in that place with Him, we have certainty of that. He will be there and it will be the full expression of his reign and of his rule, of his victory. Earlier uh, in the Old Testament reading, we read from Revelation 19, where there's a celebration of the defeat of God's enemies. But earlier than that, in Revelation, Revelation chapter 15, there is another celebration, one, interestingly, that occurs with specific reference back to what happened here in Exodus chapter 15, uh, Exodus chapter 15. This is Revelation 15, uh, verses 1 through 4. 
And I want to close with it and just listen to the celebration. Because as God's people, we should be characterized by celebration. Yes, there will be sad times. Yes, there will be hard times. But the reality is that our God has won the victory for us, and no one can take that away. So listen to the celebration and participate in the celebration. Make these words your own, because this celebration is your celebration. It's mine. Listen, Revelation 15, 1 through 4. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass, there's a sea again, mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its names, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands, again, beside the sea. And they sing the song of Moses, servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations shall come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. That was true at the Red Sea. It was true at the cross and the empty tomb. Let's pray. Father, we pray that as your people, we would be characterized by celebration because of who you are, of what you've done, and because of what you've promised to those who are yours in Christ Jesus. Father, we pray that in the ups and downs of life, uh, whether there's smiles, whether there's tears, that we would have a deep-seated celebration to know, Father, that it turns out to have a happy ending, because you have won the victory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.